So we're in the book of Hebrews, continuing that uh, study, and we're kind of winding down. It's, uh, it's kind of bittersweet, really, because I've really enjoyed our journey the last several months through that. My plan is to finish the series and with a final message where I kind of go back and review just briefly each of the main sections and points and just kind of, kind of wrap it all up in a nice uh, bow. But we've got two more sections to, to, to cover before we get uh, to the end. One of them is today, and then one more uh, final closing section after that. And then, like I said, we'll do a, a summary. But today we're talking about the value of the local church. Uh, you know, I read a story uh, involving uh, the Butterball Turkey Company, and they had set up a hotline years ago to answer consumers' questions about uh, preparing holiday turkeys. And one woman, as the story goes, called in to ask questions about a turkey from Butterball that had been in her freezer for 23 years. <laughs> and uh, the operator told her, well, you know, it, it's probably safe and okay to eat if the freezer was, you know, below zero degrees the whole time and so forth. But the operator warned the lady that uh, even if it were safe to eat, you know, after 23 years, the flavor had probably deteriorated pretty much, and she wouldn't recommend eating it. And the caller replied, yeah, that's kind of what we thought, so we're just going to give it to the church. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of funny, you know, people, people take their, often take their junk, and they, if they can't sell it at a garage sale for a dollar, then they bring it to the church or something. But anyway, um, you know, I, 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 I really... I enjoy talking about this subject of the church. I've taught the uh, courses on ecclesiology for many years, and I really value because the Lord values the church. He loves his church, and we need to recognize that the church is more than just some historical movement or cultural development or religious tradition. The church is a divinely ordained institution. The average person doesn't know that, especially if they're not involved in a Bible teaching church. They tend to think of the church as an extension of religion, that uh, you know it was sort of some man-made thing, and there's all these schisms and schisms and denominations and religions, and 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 uh, you know some people like that great uh, theologian Jesse Ventura uh, said, uh, you know, the church, the churches or religion is a crutch for weak-minded people. Well, that's kind of the attitude that a lot of people have. 2,000 years after its establishment as a divinely ordained institution, which I'll demonstrate in a moment, I think we've lost sight of its significance. You know, the church is changing, and we see this predicted in Scripture that there will be a great last days you know, apostasy, that people will depart from the faith, people having itching ears and so forth. Uh, but a lot of the church that was established on the day of Pentecost in 33 A.D., uh, as the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2, is no longer centered on doctrinal teaching. It's not bibliocentric. It's just more of a social club. And even in recent, in the last year or two, year and a half, we're seeing uh, churches no longer assembling together in many cases. Uh, we see churches taking orders from the state instead of God. We see churches becoming more ritualistic. We see a lot of churches becoming more postmodern, where they're all about, you know, drawing lines of or circles of inclusion, where they want to include as many people as they can. A theological term for this is inclusivism, <clears throat> or in the broadest sense, pluralism. The church has basically become more compromised and indistinguishable from the world. After 2,000 years, a lot has changed. And the church is not only a place where we learn about the Bible. The church, according to the Bible, is a divinely ordained institution. God has a purpose for the church. It is central to our being. It's as central as an institution of God as the institutions of marriage, as the institution of the nation of Israel. Uh, so the original recipients of Hebrews 
faced a similar problem. It wasn't that the church had been around so long that it had begun to lose some of its luster, but it was so new <coughs> that Christians in their day were still trying to figure out its place and what is the church exactly and how does it fit into God's plan. You have to remember the historical context. The, the church was founded in 33 A.D., and the book of Hebrews was written in roughly 64 to 67 A.D., so say 30 years later. <clears throat> and so it was still very much in its infancy. Obviously, there's a big difference between a 30-year-old church and a 2,000-year-old church, right? And indeed, <clears throat> even at the time that many of these Hebrews uh, began meeting together in Jerusalem in the Christian church on the first day of the week, uh, much of the New Testament had not been written yet. Now, by the time you get to the late 60s, most of it had been, but <clears throat> not in their early days. So I think they, <clears throat> in a strange sort of uh, contrast, were facing some of the same problems that we're facing, but for different reasons. For us, it's <clears throat> kind of 2,000 years of, of being led astray and uh, the depravity of man influencing the church, and, and it's just harder and harder to find a pure New Testament biblical church. For them, it was there was very few churches to begin with, and it was still just beginning to expand. But as we near the end of <clears throat> this journey through Hebrews, the writer is going to appeal to the value of the local church as a motivating factor to encourage believers to continue trusting God in trying times. So this has been the theme of the this letter from beginning to end, we talk about it every week. He comes at it from different angles. He uses warning passages. He uses illustrations. He uses practical exhortation. But he's going to come full circle here at the end and really talk about uh, how the local church has value and how we need each other. We need each other. Um, it's God's church. You know, um, often we, and it's understandable, we tend to recognize the human component of churches, you know. People help, uh, you know, provide funding for certain, you know, buildings in some cases and initiatives and programs and ministries. Uh, some churches will put names up on buildings. Um, we, we honor, rightly so, former pastors and key men and women of faith that helped uh, make the local church what it is. Nothing wrong with that, but we just need to make sure that in the midst of it all, we remember whose church it is, you know. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, we've all, I've, I've had the chance to speak in, in, you know, I don't know how many, I've lost count, but uh, hundreds upon hundreds of churches in 32 years of ministry in all 50 states. And, you know, someday I'll, I'll write a book if the Lord tarries on some of the anecdotal experiences that I have. I remember one time I was at a very large Southern Baptist church in Mississippi, and we had made arrangements to speak there and set up all the arrangements ahead of time. And, and a big part of our ministry at Not By Works is uh, being able to put out resources, books and DVDs and things. And, and uh, somehow I had not it hadn't been communicated clearly or something, but when we got there to set up for this conference and began setting up the resources, one of the older deacons in the church, he had to be like 175 years old, and uh, he came up and said, what are you doing? And, uh, well, we're setting up for the conference. Well, you can't, you can't sell that stuff in here. You know, we, we have a tradition. We don't sell stuff in our churches. And, it, and it, I know it was no point in trying to talk to him about the theology theological error behind that notion <laughs> that uh, nothing sacrosanct about a building because the church is the people it's not the building he wanted us to go you, know, you can go down in the fellowship hall and sell it but you can't sell it up here this is holy ground you know and um, I saw, had to bite my tongue to keep him saying well, if it's holy ground you're in the wrong spot brother but um, I didn't that was a successful overcoming of my tongue <laughs> Plenty of times I haven't been. But anyway, uh, you know, it's God's church. And God's church is here for a reason. To help God's people in this present age, believers, have an unshakable faith. We're never intended to live life in a vacuum. Um, in our 9 o'clock 
Bible study hour in this series, we've been talking about what lies ahead. And I've demonstrated in the past the differences between Israel and the church. And I know not everybody can come to that session. And, so, and plus, it's been quite some time since we looked at that. So I thought, by way of introduction, before we get to the text in Hebrews 13, I would go back and review this distinction. Because nobody can deny when you look at the Old Testament that God has a plan for national Israel. And if you read the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical sense, of course, you come to the conclusion that there's a future for national Israel as well, that Jesus is going to rule and reign from the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. But we need to recognize that in the same way, the, God has a plan uh, for the church. So if we look at Scripture, and we won't take the time to look up each of these passages, but you know, maybe if you're interested, you can uh, look at them on your own time. These charts, by the way, are both in the Not By Works chart book, which is available on the table there. But one of the purposes for Israel was to witness to the unity of Yahweh, the Creator. Back in the ancient Near East, with all the pagan gods and mythical gods and so forth, there was what set Yahweh, the creator of the universe, the one true eternal God apart, was that he was one. And, and, and the Shema, the, the Hebrew uh, mantra that they, would, that they would say and teach their children to say and that they repeated was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, Deuteronomy 6.4. And so Israel served that purpose. It served as an example to other nations for the benefits of serving the Creator. When you know, go back to Deuteronomy 33 and the blessings and cursings. When you follow me, it goes well. When you don't, there are consequences. And people could see that. See, the idea was that Israel was supposed to, once God rescued them from Egypt, they were supposed to cross the Jordan, go into Canaan, giants and all, with God's protection, set up camp, and then as the pagan nations surrounding them, uh, you know, saw what was going on and saw God's hand of blessing on his chosen nation, which the Bible calls the apple of his eye, Israel, then they would be drawn to that. And similarly, by the way, today Paul tells us that the church is to shine like stars in this perverse generation. So there are some, some parallels there. But as I was pointing out number two here, a, a, pop, a thought popped into my mind from this conference this weekend um, where one of the speakers, I think it was Dr. Tommy Ice, uh, showed a picture of a map. Uh, and I talked a lot about the land of Israel, and so both of our messages really played off of each other. But he talked about the recent battle in Israel, which is one of the biggest skirmishes they've had in almost over a decade. But anyway, he showed a map that showed all the Arab territory in surrounding Israel and Israel. And it was like a tiny little red dot and then everything else was, you know, Arab. And yet, they're still wanting Israel to give up more of their land. <laughs> you know, it's like, we want more, you know. Uh, but of course, it is God's holy land. And, uh, and so someday he is going to uh, establish the kingdom in its full breadth as described in Genesis 15. But another purpose of Israel was to receive and record God's revelation. You know, most of the writers of Scripture, the human authors, were Jews. And, uh, and as you, if you read more about this in Romans 3, Paul talks about that. It was also, of course, to produce the Savior, the ultimate seed of Abraham, as we read about in, in uh, Galatians. So Jesus Christ is the ultimate seed of Abraham, the one who became the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world and, and, uh, and became our Savior. And then, ultimately, the purpose of Israel is to be center stage in the, in the future global kingdom of peace, where... Uh, Christ is going to reign and rule. So God had a purpose for Israel, and not all of that's been complete. There's still a future for it. But similarly, we see five purposes for the church. The church was intended to call out, first of all, a people for his name. We read about that in the account in Acts 15 of the Jerusalem Council, where James, I think it is, talks about that. And we see in, as the church began to grow after the, the, the establishment and the birth of the church and on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, uh, by the time you get to Acts chapter 11, the disciples were first called what? Christians at Antioch, Syrian Antioch, north of Jerusalem. And in fact, the term disciple fades away. Because disciple in the first century context meant someone who physically was following the rabbi. And you stopped where he stopped, you ate where he ate, you left your parents and your wife and whatever and you followed and you learned from him for a period of time uh, 
But after he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, then people began to have to sort of study him through the Spirit. And, uh, and of course, eventually as the apostles all died out by the end of the first century, now then there was nobody left on earth who had walked and talked eventually with Jesus. And so we, we have the indwelling Spirit and we have his Word. So we have the living incarnate Word who was with us for three and a half years. Now we have the living written Word, uh, the Word of God. But uh, unlike Israel, and the Jews were never called Yahwehites, <laughs> we're called Christians, right? That's unique. Uh, we, we, our namesake is the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. And another purpose was to showcase the exceeding riches of God's grace. I've talked a lot about this uh, in, in, here at Plum Creek and, and throughout our ministry with Not By Works, that Grace didn't come into existence at Calvary. God's always been a God of grace. Grace is His eternal attribute, one of His eternal attributes. But what we saw in Christ and through the church post-Calvary is the greatest manifestation of God's grace. It was always there, but it's like grace in high definition. That We saw grace in the Old Testament through things like Abraham and Isaac, through in the days of Noah, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We see it through the sacrificial system in Israel. But never as clearly and plainly as when God Himself shed His blood for your sins and my sins. And that's the message of the church. That's the gospel message. Go into all the world and preach that good news, we're told to do. And then thirdly, uh, this is an interesting one, but in Romans 11, one of the purposes of the church is simply to get Israel's attention right? Uh, you know, a lot of people today try to teach that the church has replaced Israel and that we are living in the end-all, be-all, ultimate fulfillment of God's plan. This is it. This is as good as it gets. I hope you're enjoying it. Welcome to the kingdom, right? Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches, but a lot of Bible teachers teach that. And the church has not replaced Israel by any extent of the matter. In fact, uh, Romans 11 is a very humbling uh, passage uh, to remember as a church. Uh, I'll just read a couple of verses here, Romans 11, verse 11, starting in verse 11. I say then, have they, that's Israel, stumbled that they should utterly fall? In other words, when Israel crucified the Messiah, did God say, that's it, you've gone too far, I'm done with you, forget it. And he canceled all those promises that he made to them in the Old Testament. Paul says, certainly not. God's not done with them. But he says, But through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles, which is intended to provoke them to jealousy, verse 11. In other words, when Israel sees the blessings of the present church age that were a complete mystery in the Old Testament, you never saw anything predicted in the Old Testament about things like the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the unmitigated access that we have to the throne room of God in heaven, like Hebrews 4.16. Um, when they begin to see that, and they begin to recognize that their whole system was just a shadow of things to come, and the reality is Christ, the next time Christ comes back, they're going to be first in line. They can't wait to meet their Savior and their Messiah, having seen prefigured in the church what life in the kingdom is going to ultimately be about. So, you know, when we begin to think we're the most important thing in God's plan, we need to remember, no, He's just using us to get to Israel. That, that's His plan, okay? Um, and then, of course, to showcase God's wisdom to Satan. We know, we talked a lot about this in my Spirit of the Antichrist series, that the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Uh, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in this present age. Many antichrists have already come. There's a cosmic struggle heating up. I talked at the conference on Friday in uh, Tulsa about how it seems like ever since 1947, when Israel became a nation state again, Satan has recognized that the his time is short. And I pointed out then, I don't remember if I pointed it out when I recorded that series here last fall, but... You know, the last two branches of the U.S. military to be formed were formed in 1947, right around the time of Israel becoming a nation after World War II, the U.S. Air Force, and the Space Force formed during the Trump administration 
right after the New York Times, I mean, it was in the works for a while, but it was announced after the New York Times had broken the story about uh, the UFOs, that for 73 years that the U.S. has been tracking mm -hmm. since 1947 with the Roswell incident and the uh, Kenneth Arnold incident in Mount Rainier in Washington, all of this unidentified phenomena. And they've changed the terminology mm -hmm. in the Pentagon's own documents from UFO to UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena. Mm -hmm. And I believe we've seen a cosmic struggle, I believe biblically, I don't think these are little green aliens and Martians, that doesn't comport with scripture, but biblically there is a supernatural spiritual realm that Paul talks all about. We wrestle against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. And I believe since Israel became a nation, that cosmic struggle has ratcheted up and we're seeing bits and pieces of it dimensionally happen. And, and you compare that to Scripture and some of the Old Testament prophets and the book of Revelation and the things that will happen in that final seven-year period, it fits perfectly. So uh, God is basically, through the church, putting it in Satan's face and saying, you know, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church and my plan. And then ultimately you see the purpose of the church is to prepare a body that will help rule during the Messianic kingdom. And uh, we're going to rule and reign. Remember, he told the disciples they would rule on 12 thrones with him. Uh, he said, if you're faithful and you endure uh, persecution, you'll reign with me. And uh, Luke 19, Jesus describes that when he comes back to establish the kingdom, he's going to call the church together and say, you know, uh, he doesn't use the word church, but it's an allusion to the church, that depending on how faithful you were with the stewardship I gave you here, I'll put you in charge of certain areas of the world during my reign. So that just kind of gives you a little background about the distinction between the two. And then I want to just dive into this text and, and show you five ways, uh, especially in these troubling times, that the local church can be a benefit to believers. The same thing that's true for the first century original recipients of Hebrews is true uh, for us today, and you might even could argue even more so. Because if the Lord tarries is coming, we're going to be in for a rough term. So the first thing we see is the church provides teaching to learn from. The church provides teaching to learn from. If you look at verse 7, he, he says, Remember those who rule over you. We're going to come back to that in a little bit, so we'll just skip it for now. But who have spoken the word of God to you. Spoken the word of God to you. God wants us to focus on the teaching of God's word in this present age. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. This is his self-unveiling to mankind. And so many churches have long ago abandoned the Bible. They were much more interested in just social club stuff. And um, I, I may have told this story in here before, but I don't think so. But it uh, just popped into my mind that I can remember as a kid, we moved a lot. And, of course, my mom and dad were Christians, brought us up in a Christian home. And every time we would move, my dad would get transferred or something like that. We would, he would always make it a priority to find a good church in the new state or town. By the time I started high school, I lived in seven states and 13 cities. And, and I remember one experience. My dad tells a story visiting a church nearby that new house we just moved into. And I don't even remember what kind of church it was, but it was a mainline denominational church, but it was close to the house. He thought, let's check it out. So as usual, we all dressed in our you know, Sunday best, but like you used to do back in the day. And we all had our Bibles because we, as kids, brought our Bible search. And my dad always had his Bible. And we walked into the church, and the usher at the door greeted us. And he said, uh, well, welcome. So will you be delivering the message today? My dad said, no. And the usher said, oh, oh I'm sorry. I just I noticed you have your Bible. And I thought, maybe you must be the preacher. Well, nobody in that church had the Bible brought their Bibles. They were just there to sing hymns and hear a little brief homily, a little chicken soup for the soul, and go home. That's not the purpose of the church. And the writer here reminds his listeners to, to focus on the spoken Word of God, which in that day was the apostles giving revelation, and it ultimately it was completed by the end of the first century. So the Bible tells us, Paul would later say, that all Scripture... The word scripture there is graphe. It's where we get our English word graffiti. It just means writings. So the writings of scripture, the written word of God, in other words, are given by inspiration of God and profitable for four things. Number one, it's profitable for doctrine. Now this little section of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 
is really fascinating to me. I've pointed this out often that it forms kind of a, a chiasm, right? And you'll see what I mean as I go through it. But when he talks about doctrine, one of the things that the Bible is profitable for, doctrine refers to what to believe. It's a standard of truth. It's a corpus of our beliefs. If you go to church websites back in the day, uh, even the early days of church websites, and even before websites, they would have usually printed copies of their doctrinal statement. And often those were headed by what we believe. Here's what we believe. Here's what we believe about God, Christ, the Holy Spirit. Here's what we believe about scriptures, about the church, about salvation, about sanctification, about the end times, so forth and so on. That's doctrine. That's what the word means. And so God's word teaches us what to believe. But the next thing he says is God's word is profitable for reproof. Well, what's reproof? Reproof is what not to believe. God's word tells us what not to believe. Here are some things that are wrong. You need to watch out for. You need to be aware of. I was talking to a lady at our <clears throat> booth yesterday who came up and said, uh, asked me a question. She said, <clears throat> how come you don't hear much teaching anymore about the errors of the Jehovah's Witnesses? And I said, well, because <clears throat> the church today is mostly apostate and you just don't get a lot of doctrine and reproof. You know, but we need to know that some of these cults and things are wrong, and we need to be alerted to them. Um, so God's Word tells us what to believe and what not to believe. And then the third thing Paul says is it's profitable for correction. Well, correction, and here's where you begin to see the inverted chiasm, how not to behave. Here's some behaviors that you want to avoid. And the Word of God gives us those, doesn't it? You know, adultery, fornication, lying those types of behaviors, right? And then it says it's also profitable for instruction in righteousness, which is how to behave. <laughs> so think about it. God's Word tells us what to believe and what not to believe, how to behave and how not to behave. When you get right down to it, what else do you need in life? All of life comes down to what you do and what you think. And if you can bring into captivity your thoughts so that you know what to believe, what's the truth, and what not to believe, what's a lie, and translate that into action that is righteous and, 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 and avoiding things that are not righteous, that's pretty much all you need, right? Conversely, if you ignore the Word of God, which so many churches do today, it should be no surprise that so many Christians are led astray into all kinds of aberrant, heretical, terrible teaching and believing all kinds of false teaching. And so many Christians are living immoral, ungodly lifestyles. Right? Why? Because if you take away the Bible, you've got no regulator. You've got nothing there to tell you what to believe and what not to believe, how to behave and how not to behave. So the Bible is central, and he wanted to remind his readers of that. And Paul, by the way, closes out this verse by reminding us that because of the Word of God, which is inspired by God, we are thoroughly equipped for every good work. We are complete, meaning mature there. So you just cannot separate the Word of God from our ability to navigate this world and successfully go through the trials and tests of life. You just can't do it without the Word of God. Secondly, in verse 7, but going back to the text, the church presents an example to look back on. An example to look back on. So again, in verse 7, not only those who have spoken the Word of God to you, but whose faith follow, he says. Well, this is a recurring theme. It ought to sound familiar because he's said it many times in our journey through the book of Hebrews. Uh, but this idea of following the faith of other godly men and women who are examples of faith. And many of the leaders in the early church were martyred for their faith. <clears throat> it had been martyred by the time this letter was written. Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter 7. Remember that? And uh, Paul was consenting at his death, and they laid their coats at the, you know, the, as they got ready to wind up, you know, as they came out of the bullpen with their hands full of rocks, they took off their, you know, their, their sweatsuit, and so they had their full uniform on. They laid it at the feet of Paul, and they went over where Stephen was, and they started throwing rocks at him and killed him. And Saul was right there, consenting, until he met Jesus shortly thereafter on the road to Damascus. 
James, one of the inner three disciples of you know, Peter, James, and John. James, the son of thunder, the Bible calls him, martyred in Acts chapter 12, early on in the church. And so the writer of Hebrews, by the time you get to the late 60s AD under the Neronian persecution, he's reminding them that you, know, you cannot make your decisions based on temporal earthly fears. <clears throat> You've got to stand firm uh, with uh, following the faith of those, you know, remembering their outcome. He, he in chapter 6, <clears throat> excuse me, I think my voice didn't, I needed it to last 20 minutes longer <laughs> this weekend. I knew, <clears throat> speaking five times in four days, it was going to be uh, close, but uh, <clears throat> bear with me. I know it's not easy to listen to. Um, in, in chapter 6, he had reminded them, to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Obviously not talking about eternal life there. We don't get eternal life because of how much we endure. We get eternal life as a free gift by faith alone and Christ alone. But he's talking as he frequently has about the eternal rewards that await those who pay the ultimate sacrifice. So uh, the church presents an example to look back on. And you know it's getting harder and harder and harder to find examples of godly men and women of faith to model our lives after, isn't it? But when we do find them, you know where we're going to find them? Connected to the church. You're going to find them in the local church. And uh, you just can't uh, sidestep the church. There's no substitute for it. Then you see also in verse 7, the church promises a reward to look forward to. <clears throat> Uh, as he says, considering the outcome of their conduct, what was that outcome? Well, they got rewarded. Jesus, in fact, every writer in the New Testament mentions rewards that we will get ultimately in the kingdom. And every book mentions them. Jesus had a lot to say about them. When he sent out the twelve early on, he reminded them, Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. In other words, there's a special commendation that awaits those who serve him faithfully, even in the midst of great trying times. This is one of many verses that is so often completely ripped out of context. You know, he says nothing in here about eternal life and getting heaven or hell. He's speaking to his believing disciples, who were the apostles and foundation of the early church. He's not questioning whether they're going to heaven. He's talking about a special confession when they get there. That's all it says. Let the text say what it says. People say, well, if you don't, didn't confess me before men, you're not getting to heaven. That's not what Jesus says. He says, if you do confess me, I'll confess you. And it's the same thing he said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. What greater reward can there be than to hear Jesus Christ himself say, come with me. You, you come to the executive suite and you tell, Jesus tells God's secretary, uh, we'd like to see the boss. <laughs> and the secretary says, come right on in. You walk in, there's God sitting behind his desk. And Jesus says, Father, this one's one of the good ones. <laughs> this one paid the ultimate price. This one didn't waver when they put a gun to his head. That's the confession he's talking about. A special commendation awaits those uh, who serve him faithfully. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer had previously talked about this, as I mentioned. You have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, what's the will of God? To be faithful. You'll receive the promise. You'll receive the promise. And then 2 Timothy 2, I've talked about this one a lot on Wednesday nights. He says, if you endure, remember by the time Paul is writing 2 Timothy, he is literally weeks, if not possibly days, away from being martyred himself. Now, some scholars say, you know, he... he no sooner finished writing the letter than they carted him off to kill him. But at the very least, we know it was just a short time. He was martyred in 68. He wrote this in late 67. <clears throat> so he's, he's, he's thinking in terms of that ultimate sacrifice. And he says, guess what? If we endure, we shall reign with him. If we don't endure, he'll deny us that right. It says nothing here about getting into heaven. This isn't about, well, if you didn't endure till the very end, you're going to hell. If that were true, then Jesus lied when he said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. 
What he meant was, I give you the possibility of eternal life, but you've got to hang on to the end, and good luck to you, as Calvin would say, right? You know, wait till you get to heaven, or wait till you die, and then you'll find out for sure. No, you, eternal life is a present possession. You get it the moment you believe the gospel. And we can know right now that we have eternal life. That's not what he's talking about here. He's writing to his young son in the faith, Timothy. Did he really expect Timothy to question his eternal destiny? No, he's saying, if you endure... You're going to reign. It's the same thing Jesus said in Luke 19. And remember in Luke 19, there was that one servant who did nothing with his mina. Jesus came back and said, hey, so how'd you do with the stewardship I left you? He says, well, nothing. <laughs> I'll just return it to you the way you gave it to me. Didn't do anything. It didn't expand on it. Didn't turn it into five or to ten. And what does Jesus say? Great. Come on in, but let me have that mina. I'm going to give it to someone else in the kingdom who proved themselves to be a good steward and a good faith, you know, faithful steward. So there will be people in the kingdom someday who are enjoying the eternal bliss and joy of being with the Father for all of eternity, but are not given positions of authority to reign because they didn't prove themselves faithful on earth. There will be others, however, as we have seen, to whom Jesus says, great job, well done, good and faithful servant. You, will faith, you were faithful over a little, be faithful over much. Right? So the church promises a reward to look forward to. Sadly, a lot of churches today completely ignore this subject. We have a whole chapter on it in my book, What Lies Ahead, uh, where I actually list all the different kinds of behaviors that are rewardable, even list some of the specific rewards that you can get, the biggest one being positions of authority in the kingdom. But most churches teach that everything comes down to heaven or hell. We're taught the false notion that our motivation for godly living is either to keep from losing your salvation or to prove you really had it to begin with. And that's it. That's all they got. And they wonder why their church is so, you know, struggling with, with moral issues. It's because there's a whole big missing piece in the middle. It's, it, you know, the issue of heaven is settled once for all the moment you believe the gospel. That's done. Now you've got a whole life if the Lord tarries is coming to live on earth. And what are you going to do with that life? And there's a doctrine of eternal rewards that the Bible teaches extensively that is completely overlooked. And then, uh, number four, the church proclaims a timeless message to live by. This little verse that's been so meaningful to people, tucked right here in this last part of the book of Hebrews that a lot of people have memorized, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You have to remember the context. These believers, these Jewish believers, were contemplating going backwards, right? They were going to revert back to the Judaistic system, which was still under the protection of Rome and still in cahoots with Rome. It was only the Christians, followers of the way, that were being martyred and burned at the stake. So if they could disassociate with the way and reassociate with Judaism, they might find a safe haven, they thought. But Jesus essentially, or Paul, the writer of Hebrews is essentially saying, you're going backwards. You're going to a system that's been done. It's been abolished. It's been fulfilled. And, uh, and, and it was just a shadow, but now you've got the substance why would you want to leave this timeless message that we now preach of Jesus Christ, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever? In Revelation, we see the same thing. I am the Alpha and Omega, obviously the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end, who is and was and who is to come. That, 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 that's past, present, and future. There's no other option. You can't go back. You can't look for something else. This is it. Um, he is the Almighty. Uh, if you flip over real quick to Matthew 17, I just want to point out a fascinating section that prefigures Christ's reign in the kingdom. Matthew 17 is the Mount, the, uh, Mount of Transfiguration. So Jesus had just issued that high call of discipleship not salvation, but discipleship, when he says, you know, take up your cross and father, follow me. And then in, at the end of verse, uh, the end of chapter 16, he says, assuredly, I say to you, remember, there were no chapter divisions in the original text. So assuredly, I say to you, he says, there are some standing here who should not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then, and then it happens. He, he gives them a picture of what kingdom life will look like. In ver the very next verse, chapter 17, verse 1, 
even though I'm, the New King James says now, almost making it seem like it's a totally different subject, the Greek word is and, so he's connecting with what he just said. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And then Moses and Elijah appeared with them, talking to him. So here you have a little foreshadowing of the kingdom. Because who's there? Well, you've got Moses, representing Jewish Old Testament saints. You've got Elijah, representing raptured saints, because he was raptured, was taken up, right? He never died. You've got the disciples in their physical bodies representing believers who survived the tribulation and are going to repopulate the earth. And of course, you've got the king, Jesus himself. And so Peter, recognizing, hey, this is it. All the components of the long-awaited kingdom are here. He says in verse 5, or verse 4, Lord, this is great. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the idea. Let's build some tents and start the kingdom right now. Peter was always putting his foot in his mouth. You know, Peter says, forget those other disciples down at the bottom of the hill. Who needs them? Hey, just me, Peter, me, me, James, John, Elijah, Moses, you, let's go. Let's build some buildings and just settle down right here. You ever, you ever feel like you want to move to a mountaintop and just get away from it all? Well, that's kind of what Peter was wanting to do. And verse 5 is kind of humorous because it says, While he was still speaking, the God from heaven speaks. Only two times in the Gospels when God, the Creator, speaks directly from heaven to earth. And both times he says the same thing at the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration. So God, the Creator, has to literally interrupt the first church leader to get a word in edgewise. And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. That hear him, is he adds that over what he said at the baptism. In other words, make Jesus central. I mean, we could preach a whole separate message about that, and some of you are sitting here thinking, it kind of sounds like you are. But anyway, uh, in verse 6, what I'm really getting up to, and I just couldn't help but read all the context, is in verse 8. So let's just keep reading. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. God revealed himself to us. Just anytime God comes, you know, people, the first reaction is fear and reverence. But Jesus, verse 7, came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. And here's the key that I, made me think of this passage. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And I think the whole point of that experience prefiguring the kingdom was to get them ready for life during the church age. Same kind of thing he said explicitly in the upper room right before he was betrayed. Look, I'm going away. Be not afraid. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is going to come and dwell within you. But you've got a job to do. But while you're doing it, don't forget me. I'm the central piece of this puzzle and yet you know we see doctrines and traditions all the time that conflict with the central timeless message of jesus christ and we need to reject them the writer of hebrews in a passage we looked at last week uh, or, or that it's in our text today says do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines so he's contrasting the centrality of christ a christocentric church with all of these other things. Now compound that after 2,000 years, just imagine how many heresies there are. You know, How many churches are focusing on, on different things. So uh, he goes on uh, in the next verse to say, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Why would you want to go backwards, go back to Judaism and go back to that old system? You know? They've got to clean up the altar every week after they sacrifice. We've got an eternal altar, a timeless altar. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you can boldly approach the throne of God and serve Him because of the new and living way opened up for us by Christ. He goes on to say, The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for their sin are burned outside the camp. They would literally take them out to a designated spot. 
and burn them. And therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Where? On Golgotha, on a hill outside Jerusalem, right? As the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice. And so he says, so let's go to him. Let's not go backwards to the old system. Let's go to him. Uh, he's the one who died for us and paid our penalty. He says, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. See, there is an ultimate physical brick-and-mortar aspect to the kingdom, as he's talked about extensively. Um, he's talking about the kingdom to come of which we speak, chapter 2, throughout this letter. <clears throat> and therefore, since that's what we're looking forward to, let us continually, don't give up, don't throw in the towel, don't abandon the faith. Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And do not forget to do good and to share. That's what he talked about last week. Remember, we talked about empathy and charity and all of those, the hospitality. So he kind of, this is all part of the same section of the letter. So he kind of puts that little plug in once again uh, as you continue to trust the timeless message of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the church puts forth a structure to labor under. I told you we'd come back to this idea of rule, uh, and he does too. He bookends this section with it. Remember those who rule over you, then he comes back to obey those who rule over you. That word rule comes across a little stronger than we might think in English than it, than it is in Greek. In Greek, it's the word hegemai. It means to lead or to guide. To lead or to guide. Uh, it's not, in, it, even though it's where we get the English word hegemony, it doesn't have that sense originally. It's more of a servant-type leadership. In fact, you see in Acts chapter 7, we talked about Stephen's stoning in the speech that led to his stoning. He's talking about Joseph, referring because he's tracing Israel's history, and he brings up Joseph, and he says, the Pharaoh made Joseph governor over Egypt. That's that same word, hegemai. And Joseph, of any people, is the quintessential example of a servant leader. He was not. We don't have any record of anything bad that he did. So that's the idea here of the church leaders. And God's Word gives an example of, uh, and, a, and an instruction about how to structure the church. It's not just his divinely instituted ordination with no blueprint, or institution with no blueprint. He gives us a blueprint. And there are two offices in the church. Elder, bishop, pastor, which are all three interchangeably used to refer to one office. We don't have time to make that point, but it's Acts 17, 1 Peter 5, and passages like that. The same office, is one office, three terms. And deacons. So here at Plum Creek Chapel, guess what? We have elders and deacons, right? In Scripture, some of the elders were paid, especially those who labored in the Word, some of them were not paid. Guess what? At Plum Creek, one of our elders at least is paid, and some of them are not. At, in, in, in Plum Creek, we have deacons that help to serve. And so when he says, obey those who rule over you, it's, it's because God's divine design is he's put a church you know, institution together, and he's given us the structure to how to run it. Otherwise, it would be chaos when there's no leader. And, 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 of course, the Bible has a lot to say for those who serve in those offices about how to conduct themselves and to remember that we watch out for the souls of others and, and, and so forth. So those are kind of the five things that I wanted to point out. The church, lastly, puts forth a structure to labor under, and that structure is divinely inspired. So one of the reasons that you need to be connected to a local church, and one of the reasons we love Plum Creek Chapel so much is because we've been doing this for you know, 18 years. It was founded on the Word of God, it was committed to the Word of God. Our founding pastor who just retired taught the Word of God, I mean, unbelievably well for 18 years. Rooted in the Word of God. Have anybody seen his library? <laughs> I mean, he's the smartest guy I know. And, and we're going to continue that legacy, at least as long as I'm here. And as far as the leadership you know, that's here, I don't think they would ever let someone come in who's not going to preach the Word of God. And we need that more than ever as we see things unraveling all around us. So don't think of, I know a lot, I talked to a lot of people in the last year who have become so discouraged with churches because their church absolutely shut down and bowed down and worshiped at the altar of the government 
And so they're all reverting to, well, we're just going to watch videos online. Well, I'm glad you watch videos. You know, I'm glad you watch my videos. That's wonderful. You need a local church. You need a place to come together, have accountability, be taught by the leadership, pray together, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, bear one another's burdens. So five ways that the local church benefits believers. It provides a teaching to learn from, an example to look back on, a reward to look forward to. Uh, it proclaims a timeless message to live by and puts forth a structure to labor under. So here's the takeaway. Now, very simple. Recognize and appreciate the value of your local church. It's, it's like a needle in a haystack these days. It's so hard to find. And when you find it, support it, be a part of it, come alongside other believers. And uh, there may be a day if the Lord tarries his coming and things go the, the, the direction of the current trajectory when we do have to go underground. As beautiful as our facilities are, there are churches all across the globe right now in closed countries that are meeting, but they're having to do it secretly. And, and it may come to that. But that's because but that's when we need to remember the church is not a building, it's a people. And thank the Lord we have this building, and I hope and pray we'll get to continue using it for a long time to come. But let's remember that the church is the body of Christ. It's the people. And it has real value, especially in times of, of difficulty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, reminder from your word. We pray that you would just take these words of Scripture, uh, set aside anything that I've said or stumbled over my words that may not have come out right, and just allow the word of God, your word, to really pierce our hearts, strengthen and embolden and encourage us. And if there's one here that doesn't know you or maybe watching online, I just pray that, Lord, this, your spirit would convict them of their need for a Savior and that today in simple faith they would trust in Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, as the only one who can save them. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.